because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Canadian professional basketball coach Roy Renna to the Basketball Podcast. Renna is the head coach of the Egyptian men's national basketball team and for the Kyoto Hanaras of Japan's top professional league, the B League. Rana has vast experience at the youth high school, collegiate, and international levels, along with three valuable seasons working in the NBA as an assistant coach for the Sacramento Kings. As a high school coach, he enjoyed a remarkable run at Eastern Commerce Collegiate Institute from 2000 to 2009. His overall record there was 256 and 39 and guided the Saints to five provincial high school championships and a combined 14 regional and city titles. As the head coach of Ryerson University, now Toronto Metropolitan University, Rena ended his tenure with an overall record of 195 and 87. Rena has incredible international experience, serving as national team head coach for Canada at the senior level on down to the youth levels. Most notably in 2017, Rena led Canada to the FIBA Under-19 Basketball World Cup title, the nation's first ever title in the tournament. He also served as Germany's lead assistant at the Tokyo Olympics. Roy, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Chris? Good to, good to see a familiar face. Man, it's great to see you. It's great to not have to coach against you. Um, that's that's definitely a pleasure to be in these seats. But, uh, you know, Roy, I got to say, I mean, I, I'm so impressed with everything you've done in basketball and, uh, you know, so many different places and so many different opportunities have come your way. And uh, let's talk about how some of those opportunities came to you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's some of it was luck. Uh, but most of it was just uh, building great relationships with people. When I was a high school coach, uh, you know, in, in uh, my first school in Toronto, I, I spent some time with uh, an official at the time named Lucy Altis, who's kind of a legendary figure in the inner city game. And just picking picking his brains, asking him questions about what he had done at Eastern Commerce, which was the powerhouse high school at the time. And I think he really uh, appreciated the fact that I was curious, that I asked questions that I wanted to learn. And Sure enough, six years later, he asked me to take over the program. So a lot of those types of things, uh, just a, a genuine, um, I just like people. I, I like learning their stories. Um, I like meeting new people. And I think that served me well. And then I've also been in environments where, you know, I've had a lot of people that, that kind of wanted to get to know me because of access that I had. And the Hoop Summit is probably the greatest example of that, right? I mean, when you're coaching the best young players in the world, everybody wants to know who you are. And Sometimes because they're curious about you, but sometimes because they're curious about who you coach. So, um, you know, it's allowed me to build some great friendships and some great relationships. Sometimes those those are very transactional and that's not always a nice thing. But, uh, you know, you stick with the ones that are genuine and, and, and hopefully they uh, they provide greater opportunities for you down the road and, and hopefully you provide value to them as well. Well, talk to me about that, about uh, turning these genuine relationships into transformational opportunities, really. And, uh, you know, and particularly, give us an idea, like, how do you keep in touch with everyone? Because, again, I got to imagine you've got one of the biggest networks around because it's not just North America. It's international as well. Yeah, I think I, I try every, you know, it's, it's nothing that's really kind of, you know, I, I don't program time to keep in touch with people or anything like that. I, I just, you know, I think about somebody and I send them a text and just see how they're doing. And, uh, 
you know, sometimes when I have a coffee in the morning, I might reach out to four or five people, just check on them and see how things are going for them and, and just stay connected that way. And, you know, sometimes you, you, people are genuine, they stay connected with you and reach out to you as well. And other times, you know, friendships fall off. I mean, that's just part of life, but, uh, you know, certainly try to, um, do my best to genuinely stay in touch with the people that I really enjoy, you know, spending time with or communicating with and learning from. Well, it's awesome. And uh, I know your career continues and you'll do some other amazing things moving forward. And through my time with you, I mean, I had that brief time. Thank you so much. You let me spend some time with you at training camp for the FIBA under 19s. And that was really my first exposure to learning how you do things. Obviously, I knew you did things well and I scouted you and all those different things. But actually seeing you in action was a really, really wonderful opportunity for me. And I thank you for that. And uh, I want to dive a little deeper on some of those things that I know have been cornerstones for you. And that's defense. Can you talk a little bit where that philosophy evolved over your time and then you know because i can remember back to eastern commerce to ryerson and then obviously on through your journey defense being a cornerstone of all your teams yeah uh you know it's a great great question i'm not sure kind of where i fell in love with that side of the ball but that toughness aspect that grittiness that that those are the things that i've always enjoyed in my teams and to be honest with you in some ways it's been a little bit easier to teach it's been a little bit easier for me to understand it's always been something that I'm a little bit more comfortable with. Offense is always this kind of, it's kind of a, a really, um, you know, it's a different journey. It's complicated. It's complex. It's feel. It's rhythm. It's all these things where, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, I think you can be a lot more impactful from a, just a, a structure perspective and discipline. And with young players, uh, it was easy to kind of impact on that side of the floor. And then, you know, when I got to Ryerson, you know, I changed completely what I did defensively. As a high school coach, we were about, you know, pressure, full court, you know, getting into people, denying, standing, turning people over. And then when I got to Ryerson, I had to really think about what I was doing because we weren't very good when I started. And, you know, that was being exposed to a lot of great coaches in our league. I mean, we had great coaches in our league. And they forced me to think about, you know, how I did things. I started to surround myself with people who kind of gave me more insight uh, on that side of the floor. I, you know, I spent a lot of my time uh, when we would have that kind of Christmas exam break, going to the U.S. and watching coaches, visiting a no number of programs. And I, I think a lot of those things together started to really kind of define what I wanted to do defensively. And, and um, yeah, I just built it out from there. You absolutely have. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that already being adaptable from high school to college and, uh, you know, you've been adaptable throughout your career. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the importance of being adaptable on the defensive side. Yeah, I think as you move up levels, it becomes more and more. Uh, it just it, it, you have to do it, you know, and, and I remember looking back at some of the teams that we played in the OUA that were very different, you know, game to game, week to week. They were always trying to find ways to change what they did defensively to match up against the other team i was very different you know there we played one way and we played one way all the time we didn't really make a lot of adjustments uh, and i still try to be that way right i'm very committed to our base and the foundation of what we do defensively here now in kyoto but um you know spending time in the nba spending time internationally just the sheer volume of games you know it changes things so you know we oh you you might play 30 35 here we're playing 60 probably 70 by everything's done. If you make the playoffs, maybe more. Obviously, in the NBA, it's, you know, closer to, to 90 to 100 games. And uh, you have to be able to make some adjustments on the defensive side of the floor, and you have to have that built into what you do. Unless your team is great on film and, and, and has a lot of experience, 
might be a little bit easier, but you have to really be efficient in how you practice, how you dose in the things that you do. So you just got to cover a lot more things defensively than you would necessarily when you're a college coach. Um, so that's been kind of, you know, my growth being in the NBA and then also now, you know, being in a situation where we're going to play a ton of games in a short period of time. Well, we're going to come back to the short period of time because I know that's another thing that you've been exposed to a lot. Uh, but but just talking about that defensive base, because that's really the structure that gives you this opportunity to be yeah. able to be adaptable, right? So talk to us first about the base. Well, I think there's there's probably a couple of areas where, you know, you what you what you do is what you do and it doesn't change. I think transition defense is one of them. I don't think you necessarily change your transition defense from, a, you know, a game to game perspective or a, at particular times in the season, unless you're terrible and you're trying to find solutions, maybe at that point in time. But the reality is, is, you know, for me, uh, transition defense is something that I continue to do the same way I did at Ryerson, haven't changed it a ton, maybe tweak the language a little bit. But uh, that's something that we don't really, you know, fool around with a lot. Um, what we do in penetration and how we rotate is something that we don't really play a lot around with a lot. But I think where you can be adaptable and where you can make adjustments is in your pick and roll defense. You know, the coverages that you uh, you decide to use on a night to night basis or particularly maybe with a personnel matchup. And then obviously in the post. So this league here now in Japan has been a huge learning experience for me. We're, we're nine games in and I mean, it's heavy, heavy post up league. I haven't been around that in a long time. So really trying to figure out what we're going to do in the post, and how we're going to guard it. And, it's affected the way we we uh, attack switches or defend switches because now your switches are, you know, six ten on five eight, and uh, you got to get better at scramming out, or you got to try and keep size on size. So that's become a kind of a unique area where we need to be a little bit more adaptable to maybe what I've done in the past. Uh, and then off ball action as well. I think you can kind of really play around with what you want to do off the ball. Uh, but those three areas, I think, are where your your opportunities are to kind of. Be open-minded, be flexible, be adaptable. Um, but there are some areas where, you know, this is what we do and we're going to do it every night. And we're not really going to change it. So if that if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, transition defense, you talk about not changing it. I mean, one of the things I adapted from you is the term heels. And so talk to us about heels because it all starts with that position, you know, especially internationally yeah. with that charge circle. Yeah, well, you know, we, we wanted to really kind of, more than actually the location or the terminology, it was important to have a place where you could evaluate, where you could show on film and you, where you could hold your players accountable. So for us, in the FIBA game, especially at the younger levels, you know, we, 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 the first man back took the basket and we talked about having heels above the charge circle and really being active and, and kind of holding that spot, forcing passes, just taking away any layups and transition as much as we could. So for us, it was an easy thing to really dive down as far as you know, holding your players accountable and giving them a visual, right? We talk about guarding the nail, um, you know, so it's a similar thing. We've just given it another court location where we can hold our players accountable to it. And, and it served us well over the years. And great phrasing, great visual for players. I know I use it with my, you know, my youth team and it's easy to understand. It's a concept that gives them, again, a very clear cut evaluation of where they are or where they're not. Uh, another takeaway is when I was with you, and I assume you still do this, a part of the base was shell. But what I loved about when you did shell was it wasn't like these repetitive over and over again, long periods of time. It was almost like these quick reviews every day where you started with this shell, it was quick hits, boom, 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 and then get to the next. We do it every single day. We do Still, it probably yeah. the first drill that we do about 10 minutes and we basically go through all of our base. Mm -hmm. And then 
start. And then it's also become a teaching tool for us to now look at, you know, okay, being more attack minded in coverages, maybe in pick and rolls, you know, if we're going to hedge, we get a, a couple of quick doses of what we want to do there. So it's just, a, it's an easy way to, to, to drill concepts and do it five on five. So our shell's gone from four on four to five on five. And uh, it's just a quick review and a quick reminder. At times we might do it quickly in a, in a game day shoot. Uh, it's just a way for us to, one, remind ourselves of what our base is, and then just, you know, a quick dose of, of cleanup. Maybe it's on a closeout angle. Uh, maybe it's an adjustment in the post. But, yeah, we, sh we shell every day. We're, you know, I think there's really, you know, as coaches, we got to have two or three things that kind of define us and define our teams. And those are the things that we just kind of, you know, it's like Groundhog Day or, you know, just every single day, you know that you're going to do this. And on the rare occasion, you may want to change it. But that's who I am. So every day our guys know that, you know, most likely the first thing we're going to do is going to start with show. And give coaches a perspective, because, again, it's not this 10 minutes on one thing. You're going through a bunch of different things. So give us an idea of that. Uh, we, you know, we may start with baseline penetrations. We may start with slot. Well, we'll go baseline slot. We may just sprint, for, sprint to the ball, getting stance, working on our closeouts, working on our stunts. Uh, we may have a couple of side pick rolls thrown in. We may uh, obviously some post entries. Uh, we may do a couple of off ball actions. And it's just really the rhythm of how you set it up and how you keep it flowing. Uh, you can get a lot done in 10 minutes, that's for sure. And it's not live. We're not playing off of a shot. Uh, so it's a way to, again, really drive down you know, the, the base rotations of what we want to do in base coverage. So a certain number of passes or a certain number of ball reversals or a certain sequence of driving. Yeah, usually line. we'll go to one side of the floor. Yeah. We'll bring it back to the other side of the floor and then we'll flip. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, having watched again, it's quick hits. It's, it's what I term now reconnections where you're constantly reconnecting players to things that you've taught. Uh, and then you've also mentioned that you're able to be adaptable within that. Is that a time where you're able to introduce some scout specific things during the week as well to adapt to a certain team? I mean, I might, not even mention scout and just doze it in any way and then we'll touch on it later in the week as we get closer to uh, our opponent but again it's 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 really fast it's really quick we're not going to spend a lot of teaching time here um and it also allows us a chance for them to kind of figure it out on their own a little bit as well whereas it's not a lot of stop and go you know especially at the you know at the higher level of the pro guys i mean they don't want to hear you talk too much they, they want practice to be quick and have it flow and get through it so I try my best not to stop too much. And if there's mistakes, we might clean it up on film. Um, but yeah, the rhythm and the flow, I think, is really, really important of the drill. So that connects players to the base of what you're doing. And then another part that you talk about is player development to drive your base. Can you explain that to us? So we'll do now we're doing a lot of one on one. So working on our closeouts, um, where we're sending the ball. Um, you know, I think. If... You still there? Yep. Okay, I, for some reason I lost the screen, but <laughs> we're all good. Um, can you um, see me? I can't. So I'm trying to find you here. Hmm. Can you hear me? I can. Everything's good. I can see you. I can hear you. It's still recording. There we go. There we go. I got it. Perfect. Okay. We're back. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, some a, a little thing like we talk a lot about, um, you know, guards and pick and roll getting into the ball, and you know, connect and direct. I've heard that term that I kind of like. Um, so we'll we'll dose that in. We may have our coaches set a screen and, and have our guards guard each other, or guard a coach, and just really, you know, drill them of getting into the ball, how to get into the ball, how to skinny up and get over the top of the screen. 
Um, we'll do a couple of, you know, we'll, and then we'll get a shot out of it. So we'll go, go from defense to offense. Um, just so little things like that, dosing kind of what they do uh, tactically and fundamentally and pick and roll coverage. Uh, again, like lots of one-on-one closeout stuff. Maybe we'll do some three-on-three stuff. But for the most part, uh, we try to do a little bit of defensive work in our player development work. With our bigs, it may be vertical tests. Um, every opportunity we can to kind of work on both sides of the ball, we'll try and do that. So in your professional schedule with uh, in the Japan League now, is that being peppered in within a regular practice or is that separate from that regular practice? So we'll go probably an hour. We're following a, a much more of an NBA model now that yeah. I've kind of have been around it. And really kind of, I like what we what we did in the NBA. I like what we did in Sacramento. I thought we did good work with our players. So, you know, about an hour before practice, they'll come in and, and we'll get going and we'll do small doses, 15, 20 minutes with a group or individual, all our coaches are out there. We've got four baskets, everybody's working. So it gives us a lot of time. Now we won't go a full hour with any one group, but like I said, 15 to 20 minutes managing load, making sure that that uh, we don't overwhelm them before we start practice. And then we'll practice for about an hour and a half, maybe two. And then a lot of guys will just stay behind and shoot afterwards. So they're on the court a long time. Uh, they, work, they work really hard. Um, a lot of it is just them. They just want to be out there. And, and so I think that's a nice thing that we built that kind of environment that they, they want to be on the court. They want to work. Yeah, it's great stuff. And uh, you, you referenced already the competitive schedule, but uh, give us an idea then, because building your base and then being adaptable, different times of year, it becomes more important to be adaptable. So talk to us a little bit about how competition schedule impacts your defense. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll play 60 games. We're nine games in right now. Um, and so we've got, you know, 51 now in five months, four and a half months, basically. So it's 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 going to get really, really heavy here right now. So you have to be very, very efficient with your time. Um, and, you know, the earlier that you can get in a lot of these kind of, you know, like just using hedging, for example, I haven't hedged pick and rolls in years. And we're considering, you know, doing some hedging now. And. You know, so we've had to cover that early on, even though we haven't used it, just to talk about the terminology, the language, what our call is going to be, what we want it to look like. We may not be great at it, but we have it in our toolbox now. And as we move forward, it might be one practice where we sprinkle it into our shell drill. We might only spend two minutes on it, but it's now something that, you know, I'm going to have to trust our guys. And this is, you know, they're professionals and that if we go to that coverage that they're going to be able to execute it. Will it be perfect? Will it be clean? Probably not. But at the same time, you know, we're not going to be using it probably for the majority of the game anyway. So we'll dose it in a little bit. And if we are going to be a heavy hedge team based on who we're playing, um, then we'll spend a little bit more time in practice. We'll spend a little bit more time in film. Uh, We might even work with our bigs a little bit in player development to get them a little bit more prepared for that coverage. Um, And then, you know, then you got to go with it and and see how it works. and, And hopefully it works for you. But that's the reality. And then the other thing here in Japan is, you know, we're playing back to backs. And we're playing the same opponent on the second night. So sometimes you got to change it up a little bit. You can't just do the same thing both nights because, you know, the teams are preparing. The teams are very well coached here. Um, so I think that's that's a big piece of us trying to be a little bit more dynamic. Um, and I'm learning that. I mean, you know, over the first, I came in here thinking, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, and I very quickly realized, oh, we're going to have to do a little bit more. Um, I'm not going to be able to just be as simplistic as I wanted to and just as committed to three or four things we're, we're going to have to be a little bit more uh, dynamic in what we do defensively, especially for us. Cause we're, we're not huge. This league is a really big league. We're a little bit smaller. So 
we've got to make that up as well. We've got to size this advantage sometimes that we've got to we've got to devise some schemes to help us out. Well, that college coaching prepared you for all those back to backs. I know that. So, yes. um, <laughs> you know, the, for people that don't know the uh, Japanese league, I mean, it, you, you said huge, but so much of it is driven by the imports, right? In terms of that, I mean, it's just such a unique yeah. league because every night you're playing against basically two or three really unique, impactful imports with a ton of really skilled players around them. So talk to us a little bit about that too, because that must be one of the reasons you have to be so adaptable because those imports are so unique from night to night. Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, the quality of the imports here in, in, in the B League is really skyrocketing, right? We have we have players that are leaving the yearly. We have a ton of former NBA guys. You know, I have two of them on my team. Um, so every night you're going to get a high quality import that you're going to have to deal with defensively. And then probably the other thing that's unique is, you know, the, the post up big, that 270 pound, 6'10", 6'11 guy who's a rarity now in the NBA is there's lots of those guys here. And, uh, so your ability to have to, you know, double down maybe, um, just cause physically they'll overwhelm you. The way the officiating is here is a lot, allows a lot of contact as well. So physical game so yeah night tonight and then the next night you might play three guys that can space you out and um you know so you have to be ready to kind of adjust to, to, to the personnel that you're going to play on a week-to-week -week basis because it is very very different and then even within the game because you're only allowed to play two of your imports depending on who's on the floor from a matchup perspective um that could be a challenge as well so there's a lot of different dynamics that come into play um but certainly the size of the bigs here is is something that I was a little bit surprised by. You know, you watch them on film, you're like, okay, they got some big guys here. And then, you know, you, you sit on the bench and you see them in front of you, you're like, holy shit, these guys are huge. We've got some, there's some big guys here in this league. I, I've seen some of that. And I just, I'm surprised sometimes, like going, some, some of these guys would not play in some other leagues in a way, the same way they would play in that league, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're, the, the, the heavy big, is valued in Japan and pretty effective and efficient uh, here. Um, there's some winning teams that have some really good, you know, guys that probably wouldn't play in a lot of other places because of mobility issues. Um, but they're pretty good in this league. And then, you know, you surround them with uh, some really skilled guards and guys who can shoot it. It's, it's tough. Well, talk to us about that because that's what I see on film too. It's a lot of ISO, you know, situations where players are got, they're putting players in space to be able to attack off of different actions, say it's a horn flare or something like that. And either it's a mobile big or it's a guard or someone's attacking in space. So talk to us a little bit about defending isolations. Well, I mean, I think what for us is, you know, we're, we're going to try and really scout, you know, individual tendencies and try to force players into their weaknesses. And then, you know, based upon quickness, based upon size, you know, we're going to, we're going to decide how hard we want to shrink in. So really, where do we send the ball and how early do we help? And, you know, how early do we collapse? How good are our stunts? Those are the things for us that are most important in isolation. And obviously, if you get to the first line of defense, then where are we rotating from? And are we rotating? Are we inching out? Are we, are we forcing that player to try and beat us one-on-one? -on -one? So it really comes down to personnel when, when we get into those situations. So talk to us about analytics and how that's changed a little bit of how you approach defense and certainly how it's helped you be more adaptable defensively as a coach. Well, I would say for me, um, defensively, analytics have always been uh, key to drive behavior. So we've used it more as a tool to drive behavior. So we'll, you know, I mean, deflections is an easy one. A lot of people will uh, will stat deflections. 
I think the key is, you know, like how committed are the, are you to the things that you um, you value? You know, what your standards are defensively? Do you track them? Uh, so I look at those things as our analytics, and those are the most important things. Now, obviously, we're going to look at particular areas of the floor, pick and roll left, pick and roll right, um, percentages. We may look at our coverages and, and making adjustments there. But to be honest with you, for the most part, we're looking at ourselves, and we're trying to drive better behavior through analytics within our own team. So, so give us some more ideas. Talk about deflection. What are some other areas that have stood out to you over the years about how you can drive oh, behavior? Well, we've we've done a lot of things on contest, contest percentage, right? We we like to get, you know, we have a particular way we like to contest. And so we'll chart that and we have it up and we share it with our players so they can see it. Um, because we want to be really good in our contest. If we're sending the ball a particular way, you know, we'll chart that and show it to our players. How many times were we not able to execute that coverage or that closeout and send the ball in the, in the direction we want to? Um, so that's a big one for us. I did actually at one point in time at Ryerson, we charted, uh, bo- we created a box out percentage. So on every shot, you know, the guys box out. And what we found was that it didn't really drive any any increase in our rebounding. Like it, yeah. it was, we were boxing out a lot more, but we just weren't rebounding as much because we weren't going to get the ball. We were too fixated on boxing out. So I kind of got rid of that one. And so you play around with things and then you find things that you like that you think that you can drive behaviors into with your players. But those are a few examples, you know, 50-50 balls or another. We don't have anything that's really, I would tell you, that's like earth shattering. Um, pretty simple. Because I think that's digestible from your players, right? I think it's like you, you don't want to be too complicated where you're asking your players to do some things that they're not comfortable with. So I try to keep it, you know, as simple as I can from that perspective. And then, yes, I mean, now you have so many tools that, you know, synergy and stats. I mean, you, there's millions of different things that you can use now to, evaluate your own team's performance and also use the scouting. So we use all that stuff, but um, I'm more fixated on driving behavior within my own team and using analytics as a tool to do that. Hey coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and eliminating the fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. So I'm curious, when we talk about adaptability, I imagine your Eastern Commerce teams, you didn't have to be adaptable in a way because you could dictate so much through your style of play, uh, the level of talent, the development of that talent within your program. And then gradually, when you coach less perfect teams or less perfect rosters, is that where adaptability comes in a little bit more? I think there's just different levels of adaptability, to be honest. When I I was at Eastern, our biggest you know, adaptability was just space because when we practice in our home court, we were in a tiny little gym that was, you know, and you know it because you've been there. It's half the I, size. I couldn't explain of, it to people even if I tried that this right. is one of the greatest programs in the history of Canadian high school basketball practiced in a box. <laughs> right. So anytime we actually played on a regulation court, we were playing on a completely different, you know, different yeah. space. We had to be adaptable to that. And so 
at every level, there's been a certain measure and it's looked a different way and it's provided different challenges. Um, but as you get to the higher levels, the players get better. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. You have to be able to change the things that you do and in order to help your team. You know, sometimes, you know, it's something that maybe you're not comfortable with. And adaptability is not necessarily just within the base of what you do. Sometimes it's, um, you know, just completely changing your defense, right? And I'm not a big zone guy, but we've had times where we've played zone. I've had times where I've played, a you know, a matchup zone, and I don't even really know a matchup zone really well. And you, you throw it out there and, you, you know, you, it might steal you two or three possessions. We played odd front zones and even front zones and boxing ones and all of those things. So adaptability is really trying to help your team find solutions, especially when you're struggling or maybe to change the rhythm and the tempo of the game. So I've always been pretty open-minded to that. I think my fear factor of it backfiring is, is not too bad, especially if it's only for a few possessions. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, I mean, certainly when you get to the, you know, to the highest level, sometimes it's difficult to be as adaptable because you do have a lot of external pressure as well, right? You have the media watching you, you have ownership watching you, you have management watching you, you have players watching you, the players' agents are like it's, and, and you tend to kind of create that pressure on yourself. Um, so it takes you know, you got to be pretty brave to take risks um, at the highest level. That's why you see a lot of very conservative styles, not a lot of changing defenses, et cetera. Um, but hopefully that, that gives you some insight on kind of what I've learned going through this process. But but tinkering with the game or this adaptability is easier because you have built this base, right? And that's what a lot of coaches forget is that it all comes back to this base that allows you to be adaptable. Yeah, and then I would say, you know, one, you know, how you drill and how you practice, um, how you sprinkle in potential adjustments and how you sprinkle in opportunities to be adaptable that you might know you may need to use um, later down in the season, right? Like we don't practice this kind of trapping ball screens. And I don't even know if we've trapped one this year, but we've practiced it. We might have practiced only three or four times the whole season, but at some point in time, we're going to trap a ball screen. I mean, it's just something that we're going to do and we're going to have to rotate behind it. So, you know, are we going to spend a ton of time doing it? No, because it's not something that we're going to do a lot of, at least at this stage. We might, you know, in another month, if we're talking again, I may be telling you we're trapping every ball screen. Um, but we, we have to be prepared to be able to do that. And, and you got to find ways, unique ways and efficient ways to be able to dose that into your into your practice. And so that you're prepared to be able to make those adjustments where they're just not all of them are on the fly. Sometimes you might throw something out there that you haven't done at all. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes there's value in that as well. But again, that that risk tolerance, right? How much risk tolerance do you have? Um, so yeah, do you feel yeah. you have a high risk tolerance? Depends on who my team is, right? So that we have the youngest team in the B League. Uh, we, we are the youngest team, you know, we're 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 a total re, you know, a rebuild. Um, it's we know. I know what the challenges I'm in for in, in year one. It's very much like what I had at Ryerson. It's going to take some time to build this. So my risk tolerance isn't as high, you know, because we're still. It's, we have nine new players. We have a brand new coaching staff. So to be able to ha have them be, you know, maybe in game thirty we might be better further along as we built our chemistry and our trust. Uh, but right now, my risk tolerance isn't as high because I, I don't want to be a contributing factor uh, if if a possession breaks down and they get a dunk or an open three. And then, you know, that 
it just chips away a little bit of that trust that they may have in me. So we're trying to find that balance. We're trying to find that balance. But as we grow together and, you know, the if, we're, if we keep the same guys and we're here for a long time, then I think my risk tolerance will grow for sure. Well, say it's scout, say it's something like that, where you're changing something that may be a little bit from the base. Uh, how much of it do you have to sell to the players? Or is it just a question of, again, you know, you've built this trust through all this base development? Yeah, that's a great one because that's a people thing, right? And, mm. and you know that on a roster of 15 guys, like maybe seven guys are going to trust whatever you tell them and, you know, four will go along with it. And then you're always going to have one or two that are going to question. And sometimes they just question because that's just who they are. They're just going to question. So you have to find ways to kind of figure that out. And then at times, that's why, you know, head coaching can be a real challenge. You got to make tough decisions. And sometimes that's finding a way to make them buy in or finding a way for them to understand that if they don't buy in, that they're not going to play or they're going to, they're not going to play as much, or, you know, we're going to have to pull them out of these situations until they get it. So it's, it, that's a challenging one for sure. Not everyone always buys in, but yeah. you do your best in practice to dose it in, but that that's a relationship piece. That's a mental piece. A lot of it. That, did did you ever talk to some of those difficult players in advance before you even explained it to the rest of the team? I, I did that a little bit later in my career. Or some of those ones I knew that had that natural questioning. I talked to them even before we got into practice because then they would less likely question it in practice. Well, this this situation, yes, definitely in, in yes. certain environments, uh, you can have those conversations because you kind of know your people before you're getting going. In this environment, for the most part, you know, all these guys are brand new. I don't even know them, right? So this yeah. is why this this FIBA break has been great for us because it gave us, you know, a, basically a 10, 15 game sample size for me to learn our guys for them to learn me um for me to be able to look at our system and say hey this is good and this is not very good and we need to make some adjustments here or, we need to spend more time here so that's been good and, and hopefully that that uh we get off to a a nice start after the break but you know we're, we're certainly not going to be the favorite on any night that we play here because we are so young um but i, I i'm pleased with the progress we're making Good, good. And uh, reconnect us back to why you changed from four on four to five on five shell. Because again, I, you know, I'm a big believer in the five on five. So talk to me about where that came about and then why you're doing that. To be honest, it's pretty simple, right? I was just, I did four on four because it was what everybody did. It was just, right. you, know, you just do what you see and you, you, you practice what you know and what you learn. And then you're, you know, all of a sudden you're doing it five on five and you're worried, okay, maybe it might not be as smooth and, Maybe it might be confusing. Maybe I don't teach it as well. And you know, at some point in time, I just kind of said, well, like, why are we wasting our time doing four on four games? We can play five on five. Let's just do it five on five and we'll figure it out. It wasn't that hard, to be honest. It just takes some time to sit back and really think about how you want to flow the drill more than anything else. How do you want to keep it moving and keep it, you know, keep the continuity of the shell going with five guys or five girls? And, um, you know, and, and it, sometimes it's not clean. You know, sometimes it, it gets a little messy and that's okay too, because the game gets messy. The game's not always clean. So, you know, we've, we've found a way now we've gotten into a little bit, I've gotten really comfortable with it. I've gotten confident with it. And I just think it's just, that's the way the game's played. So why wouldn't we practice? That? Talking specifically maybe about some of these, uh, you know, quick turnarounds in terms of the international competitions or these FIBA windows where you've had to coach players in a really short period of time. How much do you feel you can impact them defensively to be better? Well, I think you can have a huge impact. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, 
you know, that's been our secret in Egypt. You know, um, I got there again. I didn't, I didn't know any of the guys got there quickly and completely transformed that, that program on the defensive side of the ball. You know, we have some real limitations on the offensive side in, in certain areas. We've got a lot of great players. Um, but it was the defensive side that we really wanted to key in on. And then really, to be honest with you, again, mindset, you know, a defensive mindset. It was the same thing that I think we had great success when I was with Germany, when we went to the Olympics in Tokyo. We, we kind of changed that group defensively as well. And um, so I think you can you can really make a big impact very, very quickly, as long as you couple in the whole mental side of it with what you're doing on the court. And that's really and is the key to that the base? Is the key the relationship, getting that player to be able to buy in? What are some of the keys to be able to get those players to be transformational defensively in a short time? Well, I think the key is like defining identity, right? So what is the identity of the team uh, that you want to have on the defensive side of the floor? So in uh, in Germany, uh, when I got there, with Henrik Rodel and myself, and we talked about some of their challenges that they had had in the World Cup where they had a disappointing World Cup. In Germany, what we talked about was, you know, we wanted to have an unbreakable mindset. We wanted to have a mindset where we knew that, you know, you might give up three threes in a row. Like, they, you know, there's going to be a run. You're going to turn it over. They're going to get a dunk. There's going to be a bad call. There's going to be all those things. But defensively, we have to have an unbreakable mindset. So that kind of became our identity. And then that's how we practiced, right? I mean, we knew that we were going to make mistakes in practice, that there, the drill wasn't going to be clean. And sometimes there was going to be questioning. You know, there was all those things that you deal with as a coach, but we had a we had a kind of a mental word. We had a, a kind of a, a model to, to kind of revert back to kind of ground us. Again. And so I think that's as well a huge part of it. Right. Is this really what kind of team do you want to have? What kind of identity do you want to have? That's not just tactical, uh, but it's also mental. And that's been really beneficial for all the teams that I've worked with. When you talk about that unbreakable mindset and that grounding word, are we talking about like th this thought stopping type of thing where it's like when we say this word, we move on, we get present focus. Is that the mentality of that? Uh, I, I would say probably not so much that, but just kind of a reminder of in some ways like, OK, let's move on. I, I guess it's the same thing. I guess there's some of that involved in it as well. But, um, you know, maybe just also in some ways creating less of that thought stopping mm -hmm. where it's just automatic where it's just built in where you okay you know what they scored let's go let's, let's it's part time. of them yeah okay that's very cool and um uh, this, maybe some other lessons just from these quick training camps because i know again you've had so many of these quick training camps in your time what are some other lessons probably the biggest one is just you know i, I would say i kind of learned this through the hoop summit as well because again another small short prep um you know what are you willing not to do is more important than what do you want to teach because you can't teach everything. So you have to be willing to say, okay, well, if they hurt us this way and we weren't prepared for it, I'm okay with that, you know, um, because you're not going to be able to, you know, guard a ball screen six different ways. You're not going to be able to next a ball screen in an international competition unless that's your base coverage. So, you know, what is it that you're willing to live with and accept it and pick your, the, you know, the four or five things that you really want to try and be good at and Trust that those are the things that are going to get you through. Trust that those are the things that will help you achieve the target, whatever that is, whether that's qualifying for a World Cup or whether that's winning a medal. And I think that's been my my biggest kind of learning after going through all of these small preparation windows um, is that just like don't try to do it all. Less is more. Decide what are the three or four things you really believe in that you think will drive winning for your group 
and just be okay with it. And then risk tolerance, right? Then you know that, hey, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to throw out a zone right now in the game. We haven't played a possession of it in practice and be willing to throw it out there and see what happens. I think, I think you have to have a little bit more of that because you don't have time to cover everything that you may want to cover in a, you know, 60 game season in over nine months. Great insight. And uh, you mentioned the Hoop Summit. So I'm curious then what other insights you might have in terms of player development, you know, being around so many young future stars like you have been. I think when I checked the numbers, something like 30 plus NBA players have gone through, whether it's Hoop Summit or national teams and different things. So maybe give us some insights on player development, what you've learned being around those players. Well, I mean, certainly they all have a consistent, you know, work ethic that's unique, right? They love the game. They love being on the court. They, they love just the monotony of shot after shot after shot after shot. There's a, you know, I've said this before, I think there's a some, almost a kind of a meditative quality to that, that, you know, anybody who loves the game kind of loves that, right? Just get out there and it just, it's a, it's a way to kind of breathe and, and let go and just lose yourself a little bit. The best can do that for really long periods of time. Um, so that's important. And then I would probably say for me personally, I think that, you know, right now what's happened is, you know, we've had to scale back what we're doing here because I think what's happened in player development is so much of it has become about adding, you know, adding a, a different type of finish, adding a different type of dribble move, adding a different type of pass with your weak hand. And so, you know, my whole thing is, are we creating, you know, very talented players that really aren't good at anything? Or are we trying to create a player who's really good at a few things and then build from there? So we've scaled back. and. We're trying to kind of really be a little bit more focused and narrow in how we develop our players and then grow them over time, as opposed to kind of giving them, you know, 20 different things that they can work on every day. And, um, because I think that's a lot of what's happening now, right? You see these guys getting worked out and they're doing every kind of possible. And they're pretty good. They're talented and they're skilled. But for us, and I just shared this with with my assistant who, you know, was, was in the NBA as well and came down, I think, for us, it's all about performance. Sure, it's great. We want them to add to their game, but we want them to be able to transfer that into the game because our job is to help our team win. So for us, it's really about kind of deciding on the three or four things that we really want to key in on and is driving away at that. That's great. I mean, being more skilled also involves the elimination of things, not just the addition of. And I totally agree with that. I'm curious then your approach or your philosophy relative to young players who are developing then, let's say at the prepubescent level, would you assume at that age that it's more important to be able to fill their bag, so to speak, and then gradually reduce it? Absolutely, because I think probably the most thing, most important thing is for them to have fun mm -hmm. and just feel like they have the freedom to be able to express themselves and hopefully be able to build some confidence through that. So, yeah, I mean, the younger they are, especially at the youth, like the really young levels, you know, under 12, under 13, absolutely. You want them to be able to just go out there and, have fun and experiment and do a bunch of crazy things and not fear failure. And, um, and then as they get a little bit more serious and then are more of an elite competitive environment, then obviously that has to fit into a team concept. So I, I'd agree with that. For sure. Yeah, that's cool. And um, takeaways, you've referenced it many times. So uh, some takeaways from the NBA, just being in that environment over those years with so many different great coaches, give us some takeaways that maybe we could think about applying. Well, I would say probably the big ones for me are, you know, I, I got a chance to really be very close to our performance group and really kind of learn about, you know, managing load and kind of data science that goes into that, 
really trying to help impact that and be that kind of bridge between the, the coaching staff and our performance group. So that was tremendous. And I think there's huge value in that, really understanding your group, understanding the cadence of your season. Um, because in the end, uh, you know, you might be the most prepared team, but if you're fatigued and you're overworked, I'm not sure the value of preparation in that particular environment. So, you know, I've become a lot more careful about how much we practice, how long we practice, how often we practice. And I know there's others that are, hey, we're going to outwork you. We're going to spend more time on the court. We're going to do all that. Um, I'm not necessarily like a, a huge believer in that. I want to build a great environment where, where our players are excited to work, where they want to be there every day, where it's not a chore, it's not a job. So I think being really mindful of that, I think, is important as coaches. Um, and whatever way you can do that, I think that can that can have a huge impact on your on your programs. So that one was huge coming out of the NBA. I think I learned a ton there. And then, yeah, you know, being around so many great coaches. I mean, I, I got a chance to learn, on, especially on the offensive side. You know, Igor Kokoshkov, who's now in Brooklyn, was with us in in my first year, and just the way he thinks and the way he kind of puts his offensive package together. Terminology is is a big one. You know, how do you use language? How committed are you used to your language? Do we just throw around words? Um, so I, I think there's a ton that you can get. I mean, look, it's it's the highest level in the world, the best coaches in the world, the best players in the world, the most resources, money, everything. So if you want to learn excellence, it's an incredible place to be. So for me, it was a huge growth opportunity. It's wonderful and what an experience for sure. And uh, you know, let's let's go back. Say you're going to go back and coach high school now. So talk to me a little bit about you know, because we have so many high school coaches that listen, talk to me about something that you've learned that you feel would impact high school coaching uh, that you didn't use in the past, maybe. Oh, that's a great question. I would probably use analytics a little bit more to drive behavior at the high school level. And maybe there's a lot of coaches that are doing that. When I was a high school coach, you know, just trying to, that was just starting to come into the, uh, into the mix as far as the basketball perspective is concerned. Um, I probably would spend a lot more time on physical development. I would have them in the weight room. I would have them getting stronger because we're starting to see that, you know, the difference was, you know, when I was a high school coach, you know, guys might have played, you know, between summer ball and high school ball, 60 games in a year. Now they're playing 120, 140, 100. Just the sheer volume of games has gone through the roof. So the physical demands is very different now than what it was in the past. So I probably invest a lot of time there. Um, and then, you know, the, the staples, I mean, they're young players, they, they want to grow, they want to achieve their dreams. So how much time are we spending on player development? Like, I think that's a key, like, put, put your money, put your time and energy into that. Yeah, player development over team systems in, in a lot of ways, right? Or connecting team systems to player development, which is even better. 100%. Yeah, agree. What about as a college coach? I mean, you, you reference workload management and some of those different things. And again, yeah, you know, you were probably using some of those, but uh, would that be something that would be even more integrated in terms of your program? Or what are some other things with college coaching that might change now that you've gone through all these experiences? Yeah, I mean, again, I think you're you're, you're spot on. It, it would it we got to a really good place when I was at Ryerson in my last five seasons because I backed off a lot. Right, I was one of those. Hey, we're going to outwork and um. And I didn't really understand or appreciate the the mental stress that I was putting, you know, these young kids under because, you know, especially in Canada, the academic load is no joke. And so they, they're carrying a huge, it's incredible what they do considering they're full-time students. And then they're, you know, they're, they're 
really full-time athletes in many ways and being pushed in ways that, you know, that are, that's elite. Like, you know, we ran a really high level program. So I became a little bit more mindful of what was happening to them academically and, and tried to create an environment where they could thrive on in both areas because that was important to me. So I would say for college programs, that's a, a big one as well is like, how do you create that balance? How do you create that environment? How, how can you back off and trust that you can be good without having to necessarily you know, eat up all kinds of time and all kinds of energy, knowing that there's a whole other side of it that they've got to kind of um, accomplish, really. Such a great point. And uh, maybe give us some insights through all of your experiences as well about how we can be more effective as coaches with using video to impact player development and obviously team success. So, I mean, I think now what's happening is like, you know, you have so many more opportunities to use film, right? So, and there's so many, there's just so much more film out there, right? So, uh, you know, if you have a, a good video person or you're technically savvy yourself in that, then you know, you don't even have to have a conversation with a player. You can just send them a clip and, and that could be on WhatsApp. It can be a text, whatever, and then have a conversation about that clip. Like often now what we're trying to do sometimes is we'll send personnel uh, to their, their phones um, so that we don't have to spend so much time on a game day scout on personnel. You know, we will short, short hits to kind of refresh, reconnect, like you said, but we're not spending, you know, half an hour on personnel because they've already had it. And if they're professional, they're looking at it. So. We were doing this at Ryerson. We were doing a ton of our stuff, kind of allowing them to sit in their, you know, in their in their homes and and review film on their own time and and then have a conversation about it when we come together as a as a team. So I think there's just a lot more opportunity to teach and connect and and impact in different ways using technology than we had, you know, 15 years ago. So I I think that's endless. To be honest, with you. the film side is something where you can be really really good, and that's where you need those young tech savvy guys who are really kind of good with with software and uh, they're really valuable a good video person is incredible and fortunately for us at ryerson we were able to to find some of those guys and develop them and now we have a bunch of that are in the nba so feel pretty good about that yeah that's unbelievable i mean you've had such a huge impact on uh, basketball in canada and in the world but let's Focus in on basketball in Canada specifically. Give people a perspective on Canadian basketball who maybe don't understand it. Second most NBA players, obviously tons now of international success, especially at the the development level. So give us a perspective on that because you've been a part of the rise of Canadian basketball. Well, thank you. I think you know you've been you've been a huge part of it as well, especially now what you're doing with coaches around the world. I mean, it's, it's super impressive. You know, <laughs> thank uh, you. From the Windsor Lancers to now, just really impacting coaching globally—that's that's huge. Um, listen, I mean, look, I still think you know what's happening in Canada is underrated. Um, I think we have incredible talent. That's not just talent now; like we have incredible players. They are impacting at every level, whether that's in Europe, whether that's in the NBA, whether that's in the NCAA. Every league, there's Canadians that are not just in the league, but they're amongst the best in that league. So um, I think it's time for us to kind of shift our thinking a little bit. Like it's not, when are we going to arrive? We have arrived. I mean, I think Canadians have, are really becoming impactful all around the world. Uh, I think we have tremendous coaches. I've been saying that for many years. Um, U Sport, which was CIS when we were there. I mean, there's so many great, that, you know, if I wasn't at that level, I'm not the coach I am today because I had to up my game big time to be competitive because we had so many great coaches in our league. Uh, we're starting to see officials now, you know, in the NBA at the highest levels. So 
I think we're at a really, really good point. And I think we're about to take off. I think we're about to go to the next step. Our, our national team is now ready to, and poised to make that next jump. So I think it's a great time for Canadian basketball. And I, I just, I don't think people understand how many players we have. Um, you know, like every time I'm talking to somebody and they like Benedict Maturin in, you know, Indiana, Oh, he's Canadian. Well, he's Canadian. Mr. He's Canadian. People don't realize <laughs> how many of our players, how many of these players that are, you know, turning into stars at the highest level are Canadian. So, you know, Nazmi Chulon is in in Olympia Milano now playing in the Euro League. He's off to a good start. He's Canadian. So, uh, it's it's a it's a great um, it, it's a sense of pride for all of us. But I think even all of us have to be a little bit surprised at the sheer numbers. It's amazing how many players we now have playing at the highest level globally. And I think it says something about our system for sure. Totally agree with you. And I agree we've arrived. And I think sometimes people's perception maybe that we haven't arrived is only based on our senior level. And that's been there's been so many factors involved in that that I know is changing and uh, we'll, we'll get there and we'll get some Olympic medals and all that stuff. And I have no doubt you'll be a part of that, but uh, give us perspective on Egypt and Egypt basketball. So um, it was interesting because when I watched them on film, uh, as I was going through the process of deciding whether I wanted to kind of take on that opportunity or not, I was actually really surprised because I, what I, you know, again, what I thought about was, you know, um, really kind of some of the African basketball that I've been exposed to. I've been to Senegal for a long time, you know, a bunch of times. I've been in Nigeria. So I was expecting a very similar type of, of game. And in fact, they were, it was much more South American in the style of play that they had in Egypt and even the athletes and, and how they looked and how they played. So for me, it was like, wow, okay, this is kind of interesting. And they have a very strong pro league. It's probably the best domestic pro league in Africa. Um, well coached, a lot of foreign coaches in the pro league there. Their imports are high level, very well paid. Infrastructure is tremendous. Uh, the training facilities that I had for uh, our windows were better than the training facilities I had with Germany when we went to the Olympics. So it was a, a really interesting opportunity. And, you know, we tried to model ourselves on a South American model. That's kind of where we decided that we were going to try to focus our attention because. You know, one of the things that when I got to Egypt, uh, you know, one of the things I kept hearing is, well, you know, we're not strong enough, we're not athletic enough. And I just kind of reminded them, well, hey, you know, well, Argentina wasn't strong enough. They weren't athletic enough. They were the best in the world. Like, there's, let's get rid of the excuses and let's focus on how we can become the best we can be. And they've been tremendous. I love Egypt. I love the people. Uh, um, they've been incredible. They're passionate. Fan base is crazy. And it's it's a growing basketball market. You know, the NBA is now moving into Egypt. Um, the sport is exploding. So it, it's been great. It's been a great opportunity and great learning. And I love my experience there. And hopefully when we go back in February, we can get a couple more wins and qualify for the World Cup. We're close now. Yeah, no, I know you're close and uh, cheering for you. And uh, of course, talk to us a little bit about development of basketball within Egypt, which is part of your mandate as well. Uh, many people know Kirby Shep, uh, who listened to the podcast, and he's going to be involved in that as well. Uh, talk to us about that and the importance of that. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, first, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to be able to bring a good friend of mine and um, have him get that experience in Egypt, although we probably won't be spending a lot of time together in Egypt. But, you know, he's amongst the best in the world when it comes to development, in my opinion. We worked together for a number of years. He's a great teacher of the game, great demeanor. 
I think he's going to have a tremendous impact. And, and one of the challenges that we have in Egypt is, is more of a systemic challenge, right? It's, it's very, the clubs and development programs and all those things, there's not a ton of alignment. So we're trying to drive alignment. We're trying to drive, you know, something that can be, you know, similar concepts, but also structurally, how do we build out a program through the country at all levels? And he's going to be instrumental in that. Um, there's tremendous opportunity again, right? Athlete size, we have a little bit of everything, unlike here in Japan, right? I mean, the challenge is there's just not a lot of big guys. So, you know, typically on the national team here in Japan, you know, you have a naturalized big, right? Somebody will bring in, you'll bring in, and it's not easy to be naturalized, but you, you typically your centers and your power forwards, one of them at least is someone who's been naturalized. In Egypt, uh, there's no need for that, right? You've got every kind of type of athlete that you could want. So there's a nice selection, but really it's from more of the, the skill side um, that we're trying to build from the ground up. And Kirby's going to be a, a tremendous part of that. And won't just be from a curriculum perspective, but it'll also be from a structural perspective that we're hoping to have some impact. Well, it'd be fascinating to watch and uh, wonderful to have uh, you involved in that program, no doubt. Roy, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing the game with us. Uh, you know, I've been so fascinated watching your career through the years and all that you've accomplished. And uh, it's just going to be so much fun to watch uh, the next next many years of you coaching and contributing to worldwide basketball. Thank you. Appreciate it, Chris. And, uh, likewise, I mean, I uh, I know we haven't really connected too much uh, in the last little while, although we were closer to each other in California than maybe we were in when we were in Canada. Um, amazing to see what you've built. Really, really uh, impressive and not easy. Not easy to do what you've done. And uh, I commend you because you're you're clearly impacting the game in, a, in an incredible way uh, around the world. So thank well, you. Th thank you for saying that. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com to check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm -hmm.